Job. We're getting uh, to the close of it. We have three more messages after uh, this one from Elihu, and then we'll be diving into a study of First and Second Peter. And so uh, you'll see more about First and Second Peter coming out as we uh, share a little bit more about that series. But you can even, if you want to start diving in and start reading through uh, those books, they're short. You can get through them pretty quickly. Uh, but we're, we're coming to the end of Job. This is the last speech from uh, Elihu and actually last speech from any of the friends there because what we're going to embark on is God speaking. Uh, but as we mentioned when we kicked off Elihu and through the ages, he, he's not always perceived uh, in the right way. I even reading through commentaries, they say uh, he was meaningless and, and, a, and a host of things. But as we've studied it, we've realized he's not said things incorrectly about God and has uh, claimed divine revelation. We see that again with what Theron read the first part of one through four. He's telling Job, I have more to say, and it comes from God. And so as we close out the speeches of Elihu, we want to keep in mind his goal. And his goal was to confront Job uh, with the greatness of God and demonstrate something. And this is critical, I think, because he's, he's not accusing Job of being a, a sinner ahead of time. <laughs> that would have been inaccurate. God has already claimed that Job is a man of integrity and blameless. But he is addressing Job's attitude and response to the suffering that's pulled out of Job, things that maybe he didn't even know were in him. And what he's telling Job and demonstrating to Job is that we don't lock God down to our understanding. We don't lock God down to our logic or our comprehension of his purpose and his process. We instead are to trust in him, seeing his greatness and knowing he is just. And so we're to honor and trust in God's dealings. And we see that uh, towards people, individuals. We see it throughout the whole universe. And we understand that ultimately God's working in this world is for his glory and it's to bring him honor because that is the greatest good. That's the best thing that could be accomplished. And so Elihu introduces his final speech and I say with a plan. And that's the verses that Theron read, Elihu also proceeded and said, suffer me a little and I will show thee. In other words, listen a little longer. I want you to pay attention, he says, that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. And that statement is not saying that he's traveled the world and so he has compiled a host of information. What he's saying, and he's telling Job very bluntly, I'm getting my knowledge from God. And he says now what he's going to do and will ascribe righteousness to my maker. He says, I'm going to speak not to convince you of my worldview, of my perspective of what's going on, but instead I'm going to preach to you what God has told me for the benefit or for the purpose of making sure you see that your God is righteous. For truly my word shall not be false, and that is perfect and knowledge is with thee. And again, if you read these and think that he's saying that his opinion is perfect, well, he comes off as the most arrogant person, but he's not saying that. He's saying God is speaking through me. I'm God's prophet and sharing it. And I want you to pick up on this. As we close out 37, you're going to notice that it is setting up exactly what God is going to say. It leads perfectly into how God addresses Job. And so Elihu is the preamble to what God is about to say. Here Elihu addresses Job and obviously all those gathered there. But his final speech zeroes in specifically on Job. The pronouns he uses through the majority of it say you, you as in singular, not plural. 
He's calling on him to listen a little more. I plan on speaking more for God, he says. I want to show you something. I want you to see that God is righteous. And he's going to be recapping almost that God is just, that God is fair, that God is trustworthy, that God is worthy of worship because he is God. And he promises to say what is perfect in knowledge, which as we said, he's telling Job with those words, this is divine inspiration. This is from God. And Elihu wants to make it clear, and and Christopher Ashe notes this, that only cosmic power can guarantee cosmic justice. Or if you want to say, if you want to have pure justice, if you want to have things be right or righteous or to be perfectly in line, then it's going to require God to do that. And it doesn't limit God to what we can understand, but instead involves us trusting that the perfect God will behave or respond or act perfectly or justly. He's saying that not only is God just, but God is also the only one who can bring about universal justice. It's not that he is just, it's that he's the only one that ultimately can be fully or 100% just. We can't accomplish that. And Job needs to recognize something, and Elihu wants him to see this, how ridiculous it is to question the author and actor of justice instead of listening and trusting him. Because that is Elihu's point the whole time. He's telling Job, you've said things that are wrong about God. Your attitude at times has been wrong. Because what is one thing that's been persistent through Job's speeches? And I want to highlight the good. He's constantly looking for his mediator and his redeemer. That is a wonderful search. That is a wonderful focus. But he's also looking for vindication in God's eyes, instead of trusting God for that vindication, he says, I want to stand and I want to question you. And in that, in that moment, when he's seeing that and saying that, he is arrogantly looking to God and saying, I want to put your justice on trial. And what Elihu is saying is, you don't put God on trial. And by the way, when you hear God talk, you realize that you don't put God on trial, or let's just put it bluntly, you don't want to go to court with God because you can't answer his questions. Because he's going to ask things that you can't answer and are out of your control. I put here, I wonder how well do we listen and completely trust the author of justice? Do we handle suffering as we should? I look at the slightest inconvenience and I question God's fairness. And it's just this petty, small thing. And then I think about people around the world who do face uh, oppressive suffering at times. We see it sometimes in the things that we battle. And, and here's what Elihu is trying to say, and, and I don't want you to take it in a harsh way, but as we are drawn to our Lord, as we see who God is, and the idea that he's trying to say is take a look at God to gain perspective on your suffering, and instead of just saying grin and bear it, rest the issue in him trusting that he is good and that he performs good and that he is the just God and he is the one who is fair and he is the ruler. He is the cosmic power and therefore can execute cosmic justice. So after describing his plan for this final speech, Elihu then moves to look at how God works among people And he wants to show something to Job. He wants to show that God's work among people is not arbitrary or unfair. Instead, he shows that God works with a purpose. 
And so we dive into verse 5. Behold, God is mighty and despiseth not any. And if you underline your Bible, that's worthy of underlying. And I'm going to mention again, because what he says to Job out of the gate, because Job has accused God of toying with him, of being a guinea pig. And when we read Job, when you read Job 1 and 2, don't you feel a little bit like he's some kind of experiment? Like, well, let's see how long it takes for the mountain to erupt. Let's put Coke and Mentos together and see what happens. Let's put the lava, whatever it is, it feels like an experiment. And what Elihu says is God doesn't toy with people. He doesn't despise any. And he goes on, he is mighty in strength and wisdom. He preserveth not the life of the wicked, but giveth right to the poor. He withdraweth not his eye from the righteous, but with kings are they unthroned. Yea, he doth establish them forever and they are exalted." He says, Job, I want you to realize something. God's working with you, and I know you're suffering, and he's not trying to explain away the suffering. (laughs) He's not trying to make Job sinful in the suffering. Elihu is almost diving or walking at a higher road, in, in essence. He's saying, step above where you're at and just walk on the path, trusting that God isn't toying with you, that God doesn't despise any. God, we're not God's little ant farm. In, in, In a lot of comparisons, He's like a human and we're like ants in the sense of power and control and all those things. But sometimes those analogies break down because we think God treats us like an ant farm, that he's going to shake up on purpose or fill in a tunnel on purpose because he's just toying with us. Well, he doesn't toy with us, he said. Instead, God is going to fulfill his divine purpose, which means ultimately the wicked will not thrive forever. And more importantly, Job, as the afflicted, you will be vindicated giveth right to the poor, giveth right to those who are righteous. God is graciously determined to help the righteous, those who trust in him. And he'll establish them, he says, as kings on a throne forever. What is the promise we have for all eternity? That we will reign with him. Elihu is not preaching any falsehood here. He's actually pointing Job to eternity, saying you need to have a perspective that sees what God will ultimately do. God is going to work powerfully for his oppressed children. As we walk through suffering, what is one of the, the, the number one temptation is to see the absence of God. And Elihu is saying, don't see an absence, but instead recognize that your God is working for his oppressed children. What does Satan want us to see? He wants to cloud our view of God. He wants to see a void. Well, there is no void. That's what Elihu is saying. There's no void. Now, you have to trust God's timing. You have to trust God's purpose. But he's saying that God is not absent from you. He continues by speaking of how these children of God could suffer. He says, and if they be bound in fetters and be holden in cords of affliction, and that's Job, then he showeth them their work. And their transgressions that they have exceeded, he openeth all through their ear to discipline and commandeth that they return from iniquity. And again, this is not Elihu repeating what Eliphaz and, and Bildad and Zophar have said. said, well, you're suffering because you're sinful. <laughs> no, instead he starts talking about what suffering can pull out of us. Elihu says that the righteous can suffer and they do suffer. And he's not saying they're suffering because of a particular sin, though it is possible we know that's not the case with Job. But suffering can bring out in us pride. It can bring out in us arrogance. It can bring out in us anger. And we see that, right? If you, if, if you look at your own life, I'm sure, or, or possibly those around you, uh, you see sometimes a frustration with God that is expressed. And what Elihu is saying is, 
the righteous. And he's, he's not looking for some other sin. He's not negating what Job has said he is and who God has said he is. He's not saying he's not blameless. He's just saying that suffering sometimes can pull out of us a disposition that we may not even have known was there. It can reveal arrogance that's hidden in our hearts. And again, I don't want to walk away from talking about Job for weeks on end and extolling the virtues that Job had, but we talked about it. He was human and he made mistakes and everything he said wasn't right. And that's what Elihu is addressing. He says, look, a suffering can reveal that there may be a problem in your attitude that you never knew about. And that's happened to Job. He says the purpose, though, that he calls for Job to follow is to give an ear to the discipline. And and that word or that that phrase in Hebrew um, means to literally listen to God. He's saying he's, it's the same charge. It's not like, well, you've been disciplined, so you need to react a certain way. It, it really speaks to a heart disposition. He says, if you're going to give an ear to discipline, and, and sometimes it's translated instead of discipline, instruction, because that's the connotation behind it, it means that you're going to actually listen to God and submit to him. So when you give an ear to discipline, it means that you are paying attention, which is what Elihu has been saying, please listen to God. And then it means that you actually are submitting to God. So he's saying, if you're walking through this and God reveals through suffering, and it's not the reason for your suffering. It's not like he's saying, oh, you were arrogant. God pulled it out of you with suffering, and that's why you're suffering. He's saying a blessing in suffering can be that it reveals in you something that needs to be taken care of. And he says, give an ear to that. Listen and submit. In other words, obey God in what he's saying. And he's, he's calling Job to not speak arrogantly against God, but to instead grow and change because of what he's learned. Now, you can respond, he says, to suffering in two ways. One is, if they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. And again, we quickly revert to a prosperity gospel mindset, like, well, there he goes, promising him money, promising him good. No, remember, he's thinking eternity, he's thinking growth as a child of God. Uh, We can obey and submit to God's just and correct purpose, which, by the way, is what Job does at the end, and be blessed eternally because of it. But if they obey not, they shall perish by the sword, and they shall die without knowledge, which, again, is a very critical phrase, and I'll, I'll mention it. Die without knowledge means die without saving knowledge. And so he's talking about how suffering may reveal in us a hardness of heart or, or actually a void in a relationship that we maybe thought we had, that suffering could, could bring about. And sadly, sometimes suffering does that. That somebody is revealed as not being a child of God, and oftentimes it's seen in how they respond uh, to the suffering. But the hypocrites in heart heap up wrath. They cry not when he bindeth them. They die in youth, and their life is among the unclean. In other words, they end up in an eternity that we don't want anyone to go to. We, and now I, 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 and he's broadening it here, and notice the they in, in the response. He doesn't say you and you. Job cannot be the one who ends up without saving knowledge because he's redeemed. So notice that it's a they now. Uh, we've expanded it, and he's saying, look, humanity can reject and rebel and not submit. That's a possible response. Humanity can die without knowledge, which speaks of a lack of saving knowledge. Instead of learning, they can pile up anger and resentment and ultimately allow suffering to harden their hearts to a loving and redeeming God. 
That's the point of verse 15. The point, though, is this. God uses suffering at times to expose rebellion in us, his children. He can use it to teach true obedience and submission to him. And he's not beating us down. He's revealed a response that we can then submit to him and and deal with. Uh, But notice the sadness of what suffering can also do. It can harden. Now, Job cannot respond ultimately this way. He's a child of God. He can't can't be someone who dies without saving knowledge. But there's a host of people that are religious (coughs) that when suffering comes, you see them pull drastically away. We see that in examples of people, even in the petty level, I call it. Uh, I was in church and I got hurt by somebody, so God and church are no good. Or, and I'm looking, thinking, how do you come away with that? Well, a little bit of suffering, and what it did is it started turning your heart to concrete, and it's getting harder and harder. What does it reveal? Well, Elihu is telling us what it reveals. It reveals someone who doesn't know him, and it's a sad response. But what's the point? He says, he delivered the poor in his affliction and openeth their ears in oppression. He says, I want you to listen. I want you to grow in Christ through suffering. So Elihu, in his final speech, he's called Job to listen. And he's about to get into a lot of things about how great God is, which God is going to carry on. And then uh, 38 through 41, you're going to see God's greatness in, the, in a series of questions that even when you read it, leaves you a bit breathless, which is the whole point of the constant repetition. You can imagine if you're Job and you're hearing God say that, how you feel about it. But Elihu is trying to say, look, listen, God wants to grow you. God wants to form you. And it's, it's not this trite. And this is what I'm, I'm going to throw out the word of caution, because what's the first thing we do in suffering? Oh, we feel bad for somebody. And then we're like, well, what, do you, what can you learn from this? Right? as the perennial parents that come to everyone and say, what do you learn from this mistake? What do you learn from eating worms? What do you, that's the idea we have. But that's not what, that's not what Elihu's calling. He's just, he, he's in a more serious and deep way saying, hey, um, not to extol the virtues of the pain you're having, but where are you growing? What, wh- how are you becoming more like him, because that's what God is going to use us for. He then appeals back to him directly. Even so, would he have removed thee out of the strait unto a broad place where there is no straightness, and that which should be set on thy table shall be full of fatness. And what he's saying is, you've been constrained by this suffering, and it's, it's minimized, and actually God does want to rebroaden the path. And then the whole idea of, of fatness, I always say I've lived in the wrong era because, you know, I'd be healthy and wealthy right now because I'm the fat one. But either way, that's the idea. Full of fatness means you have everything that your heart desires. You, 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 you have what you want. It says, but thou hast fulfilled the judgment of the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold on thee because there is wrath. Beware, lest he take thee away with the stroke, then a great ransom cannot deliver thee. And he's, he's just throwing out a warning. You're, you're walking like the people who respond incorrectly. You're, you're saying things that they say. God, prove, God, prove it to me. You know, have you ever heard someone say, well, I get to heaven. If God's not okay with what I've done, then that's on God. No, it's not, actually. But you're saying that. See the arrogance? It's a similar type of arrogance that comes out. He says, be careful. You're talking like wicked person. Will he esteem my riches? No, not gold, nor all the forces of strength. Desire not the night when people are cut off in their place. Take heed, regard not iniquity, for thou for this hast thou chosen rather than affliction. And this is what's interesting. He says to Job now specifically, look, you're walking through suffering. 
and it's constricting, but God doesn't want to keep constricting in this way. His purpose is to bring abundant blessing to you, to give you what is desirable in life and looking to eternity. And then he says, you've responded at times, like I said, like the wicked have. He's not saying you are wicked. He's saying you sound like wicked people. You sound like a person who's hard in his heart. Beware, because that is a dangerous place to be. And he goes on and he says to him, stop seeking death. Remember Job said that multiple times. I want to die. I want to die. I want to die. I can't handle this. I want to die. I want to die. And he says, don't do that. Don't chase that. Chase God. (laughs) Seek him. And he says, look, don't Don't chase after the arrogant words. Don't persist in your desire for a case before God. He says, but instead, when he says choose affliction, he's not saying that you should search out and desire suffering. And that's not a biblical principle to say, I want to suffer. Um, The idea is recognizing that when you're in affliction, how can I grow instead of how can I rebel? And that's what he's saying to Job. Can you listen and submit to God? Behold, he says, God exalteth by his power, who teacheth like him? And that's the question. Who, who's, who do you think you are? Who's going to teach like God? Who hath enjoined him in his way? Or who can say thou hast wrought iniquity? Remember that thou magnify his work, which men behold. Every man may see it, man may behold it afar off. And he says something to him in this moment. He says, remember that he's God. He is the great He is the all-powerful. He is the great teacher. And no one tells God how to act or which way to go. And no one accuses God of wrong. Why? Because that negates who God is. You don't go to God and say, I think you've done this wrong. Because by making that accusation, it has a deeper significance than when I accuse someone else of that. If I walk to someone in this room and say, I think you made a mistake there. Well, we make mistakes, we're human, but to go to God who is perfect and to say, I think you made a mistake, do you realize what that question is? You're telling God he's not God in that moment, that he's not perfect, that he's not just, that he's not righteous, because what happens? We know this from sin, right? How many sins condemn us to hell? Not a multitude or a certain type. And so the second you tell a perfect God that he might not be perfect, then you are negating who God is. And so you realize the arrogance of the question there. Instead, he says, we're to glorify him. We lift up his work. We give humble praise and not arrogant protest. That's something I think that can, can, when I say convict our hearts, because I know sometimes I may protest against what is taking place. I'm like, well, at least I'm complaining to God in prayer. Well, maybe I should be giving humble praise. Maybe I don't understand everything that's going on, but I don't need to give arrogant protests. And Elihu wants Job, and, and, and in extension us, to respond correctly to the purpose of God. Suffering happens. Even terrible suffering like Job can unfold in and upon a life Suffering that has no direct link to a sin committed. Remember, God, I keep coming back to this. God has defined him as blameless. There's no unforgiven sin causing the problem. Yet when we walk through suffering, how do we react? What is our response? Sadly, it can bring out a rebellious attitude. It can result in wrong or arrogant words to God. And Job did that. And I say this on two sides. This is what Job fell into. And in in essence, I hope you can read this because sometimes we're walking through something and we say, oh no, I've said some arrogant words or, or thoughts to God. And suddenly we start what? Beating ourselves up because 
we did something in this way. And I want you to realize Job is the blameless one as defined by God. And he says some arrogant words to God. And it's not to make it a casual thing. It's for us to realize as we look at Job's life, we see someone who wrestled with this and ultimately does humble himself before God. But it can happen. So how are we going to deal with that? See, because it brings it out. And if if it does, and this is what Elihu's point is, we need to repent of those words and then humbly trust our just and righteous heavenly Father. So Elihu's not leaving him like the friends did with this desperate situation. You horrible, wicked person, you're getting what you deserve. This is how life is. Repent and maybe everything will work out for you because we believe in doing good, getting good, doing bad, getting punished. He says to him, look, you've said some rebellious things to God, which does happen in suffering. Sometimes it reveals in us maybe an area that we need to deal with. But he he calls him again to humbly trust in him. We need to learn praise. We need to learn trust in the toughest times. When is it hardest to trust God? When we don't understand how he's working. When you have a windfall financially, you think God is good. I trust God, right? Because I have a windfall. When is it hard to trust God that he cares for you more than the sparrows? When things are tough, when you don't understand how he's working, when you don't understand how he's walking through it. I wonder though, how if we responded in suffering and do we need to change our attitude? Do do we need to listen to the words of Elihu and, and ultimately what God says And do we say, wait a second, and again, when I say change attitude, and this is where I want us to be real careful, because we said like, well, I got to deal with this sin, I'm a horrible person. This is a chance to grow. That's what Elihu is prodding Job towards, growth. Recognize that God, through this, uh, when I say a side benefit, a silver lining is he's revealed something in your life. You're a blameless person and now revealed these words and they need to be dealt with. God deals with them, he takes it seriously. Do we have a disposition change or I call this, do we need to grow to change our response to the Almighty? And will we learn and grow through suffering or only become hardened? I go back to the two responses. One is a response of obedience. And this is not that I have to obey because that's the way it is, but it's this listening and submitting, which actually means you agree with God. So it talks about a heart change. It's not an outward thing. It is an inward thing. Your mind is changed about it. Or are we going to become hardened? That's what Elihu is prodding Job to say, hey, be, be changeable. Have a soft heart so that God can grow you through this. Now, to help bring the point home, because let's be honest, you, you share this personal story and it connects to Job. Elihu now turns to describe how God functions in the universe. He shows the mighty hand of God. And actually, as he talks through this, it sets up what God's about to say. And so I'm going to work through this. I I say Elihu paints a picture and that picture is going to be broadened and brightened when God speaks, because obviously when God speaks directly, I mean, just brings that point home and almost, I said, creates a breathlessness if you're reading through that. Here is Elihu giving us a glimpse of how God is beyond our comprehension while still hinting to why God governs as he does, to align us or keep us aligned with God's purpose. And so he says, let me give you a broader picture of God. He's functioning in your suffering. Let me paint a bigger picture. And so we'll work through this. It's it's twofold. So recognize he wants your emotion 
uh, the Holy Spirit inspired this, that you recognize that God is far beyond who you are, but also instill trust in you that this God, this amazing God, understands what justice, righteousness is, or more importantly, he knows how to rule the world and he really doesn't need our advice because our advice wouldn't bring about anything that's positive. So he says this, behold, God is great and we know him not. And again, he's not saying you can't know God. He's saying you don't know everything about God. Neither can the number of his years be searched out. And that just speaks to the unknowableness that God is far above who we are. Take a look, he says, and see that God is great and recognize your limited comprehension. We cannot box God into our logic, our culture, or our intellect. And that's what a lot of times people say, well, I can't understand it, so it must be wrong. Well, God is not constrained to the size of brain that we have and the comprehension that we have. He is forever beyond us, and I put in parentheses, and thankfully so. I'd be more worried to worship a God that I fully understood than to worship a God who's far above me and I can't quite fully comprehend because if I understood everything about him, that makes him just like me. And I don't want to worship a God that's just like me. I want to worship the God of the universe who's not like me, who redeems me, whose plan is far beyond my plan. And again, he's not saying we can't have a relationship with God or that God doesn't care or connect with us. He's just saying God is far above us. And notice oftentimes in our vernacular how quickly we lower God to where we are. And that's just a form of idolatry. If I can make God look like me, then I can kind of worship me, and that makes me feel good about being me. Instead of looking to the God who is far above me, and it reminds me that I humbly praise and worship him, and I adjust my life to align with his. Now he goes to looking at, and he oftentimes goes to weather, because weather is, let's be honest, still highly unpredictable. I have an app on my phone, uh, Apple uh, Weather, and I follow Apple Maps, so you know I, I, I do that where you guys go Google, I'm an Apple guy. And I look at my weather and Heather's weather, same phone, same plan, same region, and different weather. And I'm like, wow, this is great. Do you live on a half a Culpepper that I don't? Did they split our house in half? In other words, we predict the weather, but it's very unpredictable. Oftentimes, you'll see it go to weather. And so he begins with the kind of precipitation, evaporation, condensation idea. For you make as small the drops of water... They pour down rain according to the vapor thereof, which the clouds do drop and distill upon man abundantly. And what he's saying is God blesses the earth abundantly. And think about this. Think about not having water. Everyone's thirsty right now, right? We're just like, everyone needs a bottle of water. They're in the fridge. You can run out there after service and get one. But the idea is we need water. We know that, right? And God gives it graciously and abundantly to us. And then Joe, uh, Elihu does a switch. He goes from that peaceful giving of water to the dramatic and powerful occurrence of the storm, which we see oftentimes. He goes to 29. Also, can any understand the spreading of the clouds or the noise of his tabernacle? Behold, he spreadeth his light upon it and covereth the bottom of the sea. And by the way, bottom of the sea is signifying that it goes to the furthest reaches of the world. Nothing is hidden from God and nothing can say, I don't hear you or, or can drown him out. Um, for by them judges he the people, 
He giveth meat in abundance with clouds. He covereth the light and commandeth it not to shine by the cloud that cometh between. The noise thereof showeth concerning it, the cattle also concerning the vapor. And what he's trying to do is he's starting this illustration he's going to carry through. God is seen riding the storm. He's sending lightning to the furthest reaches, again, the bottom of the sea. He shifts back to the rain, but now he switches. He says, ah, God can send rain, but we just talked about the beauty of rain. What happens when it rains way too much? You get what? Flooding, catastrophe. You have disaster take place. It says God can, with one item, create a judgment or he can create abundance. And it's trying to show that God can use his creation in a way that we can't quite fathom, but it's for right and it's for good. He uses the same event to both judge and bless. And we don't always understand the how or the why, but it doesn't mean because we don't understand it that God is suddenly unjust or reckless in his government of the world, and that's important. He's saying God can do what he wants with creation because the fact of the matter is, is he controls it. And he uses this water to bless, but it also could judge. And now be careful, any natural disaster, like, well, God's judging those people because I hate to see all the floods he's going to send to us if he's going to judge. So we are careful to understand that we don't understand everything, but we recognize that God is not being reckless or dangerous or haphazard with how he uses his creation. Elihu continues now in chapter 37, and he keeps going with that storm motif kind of idea. It says, also, my heart trembleth, and it moved out of its place. In other words, this, this changes me. Hear attentively the noise of his voice and the sound that goeth out of his mouth. And, and don't miss this component. He's going to keep saying this is God talking and God speaking and God moving. We do recognize that God has made himself clear in his creation. Uh, the New Testament attests to that. We are aware that there's a God. You can't ignore that. When mankind does, you recognize the hardness that's in their heart. He directed under the whole heaven and his lightning unto the ends of the earth. After it, a voice roareth. He thundereth with the voice of his excellency, and he will not stay them when his voice is heard. God thundereth marvelously with his voice. Great things doeth he which we cannot comprehend. He's going to keep reminding us of the fact that we can't quite wrap our mind around God. For he saith to the snow, be thou on the earth. Likewise to the small rain and to the great rain of his strength. In other words, he sends the great rain that waters our garden. He also sends the mighty rain that floods whatever place may be flooded. He goes on, he sealeth up the hand of every man that all men may know his work. And ultimately, if you look out, you know his work. Uh, what happens when you have a violent storm? What does all humanity end up doing? We get inside. Rarely is someone out with lightning striking down in a field saying, well, here I am. I don't care. What happens when it starts to rain at lightning storms, the wind blows, we get into our place and, and you recognize people can deny God all they want. Let a massive storm come through and everyone scatters to where they feel safe. Even animals, it goes on. Then the beasts go into dens and remain in their places. Out of the south cometh the whirlwind and cold out of the north. By the breath of God, frost is given and the breath of the water is straightened. And by watering he wearieth the thick cloud. He scatters his bright cloud and is turned round about by his counsel, talking about hurricanes or whirlwinds, that they may do whatsoever he commandeth them upon the face of the earth in the earth. He causes it to come, whether for correction 
or for his land or for mercy. And that close there on 13, he's saying, however God wants to use it, it's being used correctly. It can be for correction. It can be for watering. It can just be has his mercy that he extends uh, to us. And he's pointing out that God speaks loudly and clearly through the storm. And I would expand that through creation. We see and hear the mighty works of God. God's voice is heard as he works through nature. He speaks to the snow and to the small and great rain. Why? Why does he do this? So that all men may know his work. What's the purpose of God's working through the storm? And Elihu makes it clear, so that people will know God. God's work is supposed to cause wonder in our hearts. Job and we need to listen and we need to pay attention. You see, when God brings a storm, both humanity and animals stop doing their normal activities. And you might say, well, my normal activities is sit in an office and work on my computer. Yep. And when it happens when the power goes out. In other words, God controls every activity that comes in. And it's just this simple storm that alters our whole actions. And Elihu is trying to remind Job of something. When God dives in, he can do it anytime he wants to. And for whatever reason, he deems right. But it changes how everyone functions God, it is God that brings the whirlwind of the ice. Why? To accomplish his cosmic purpose. We as humans need to humbly see his work and trust that his working results in a final and universal justice. And I hope you're picking up on the theme that I keep saying and what Elihu's trying to say. And he's prodding Job to something. And let's kind of wipe the slate of dealing with the sin and this. He's saying, trust God. Trust God. You see the whirlwind, you trust God. You, you see this catastrophe, trust God. Trust that your God is righteous, that he's perfect, that he's holy, that he's good, that he's accomplishing the best good that could possibly be done. Trust in God's purpose. And that's why he's constantly pointing to the greatness of God. He says, hearken to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Dost thou know when God disposed them and caused the light of his cloud to shine? Now he's going to start in a series of questions that God is going to expand on. Dost thou know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him which is perfect in knowledge, how thy garments are warm when he quieteth the earth by the south wind? He talks about what, do you know how and, and why this baking wind comes in and we sit there just basically trying to keep cool somewhat? Do you understand that, he says? Hast thou with him spread out the sky? Have you, have you made what's out there, which is strong and as molten looking glass? Teach us what we shall say unto him, for we cannot order our speech by reason of darkness. Shall it be told him that I speak? If a man speaks, surely he shall be swallowed up. And he says at the end, so you're going to turn to this God that created the sky and you can't answer it. And you're going to tell him, I want to talk to you. I want to question you. And he says, again, we start at the beginning. What is Elihu's, one of his purposes with this last speech? Job, your question is ridiculous. What you're doing is ridiculous. And here's the picture of God, and, and God's going to continue this. Do you know, is what he's going to ask Job over and over again. Do you get it? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know how this happens? Do you make this work? Do you do this? Do you do that? And the point is to expose the limitation of Job's knowledge and ability. It's, it's to point out clearly that he does not know and cannot control what God has in his hand. And again, it's all just tied into weather right now. All of this given to confront Job on the arrogance of questioning God. 
of thinking he can build a case against God and his justice. I'm going to go back to that same illustration. I think most of us have heard this. Someone says, I'm going to stand in front of God and he's in a way what I've done against what I've done right and wrong. And that's going to be the take. And that's how God's going to have to answer me. And we see people speaking and they're not necessarily speaking out of suffering, but it's the same type of questioning. I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to prove my case to God. And what Elihu is telling Job is you're going to prove nothing to God. And those same people, as you hear them talk, and, and, and sometimes like, how do you answer this? And, and I usually answer them and say, you're not going to tell God anything. You're going to find out that you're not going to even speak in that situation because you're going to know that you're not able to speak. And Job actually gives us uh, 38. You get an idea of the magnitude of God. Here is the blameless Job, and he has nothing to say back to God. Of all the people who lived on earth as a human, he seems to be the one that has the most to say back to God, and he has nothing to say back to God. And we're to learn from that because you don't go to God and tell him how it is. You trust God. That's what Elihu is pushing. Elihu confronted Job and confronts us about God's greatness seen through his mighty works. We see his power in the storm and what he's orchestrated. God has shown much higher than we are. And instead of questioning him, we should be bowing before his sovereign wisdom. And I put here though, are we seeing God as we should though? Because I think sometimes we, we bring God down and we speak to God. And again, this is not to negate a relationship with God and a closeness with God because he promises that in scripture. Uh, but that relationship is not permission for arrogance. With some of my buddies that I've grown up with, and Heather says sometimes, a friend of mine, we've been friends since we were 13, and now we're both 43. That's 30 years of friendship. And what I learned from 30 years of friendship is that my friend Mike's going to put up with me, right? That's the, he's thick and thin. He, he knows it. And I put up with him. And so sometimes we talk to each other in a certain way. And Heather's like, man, you guys are, you, you know, what are you doing? I'm like, look, we've been doing this since we were teenagers. This, nothing's changed and boys never grow up. And so there we are. That's, that's what we do. And sometimes we, we go to God and we think, well, I've known God a long time. I can just be casual and flippant with God because wait a second. Elihu says, God is God. It's a gift from him that we are so close to him, but I would encourage you to never get flippant with God, to never get casual with God, to never get arrogant with God, to remember who he is. He closes with a point here. And now men see not the bright light, which is in the clouds, but the wind passeth and cleanseth them. In other words, the, the clouds may cover the sun, but at some point the wind blows it away. And here's the reality. You don't stare at the sun. What happens? You'll go blind. Fair weather, it says, cometh out of the north, which weather doesn't come out of the north. It's just a directional idea. And we'll talk about that. He's playing into some of the false teaching of that day. Uh, with God is terrible majesty. Touching the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict Men do therefore fear him. He respecteth not any that are wise of heart. And what Elihu closes his speech with is the overwhelming glory of God. The bright sun shines forth. He says, out of the north. You think, why does he say out of the north? Well, in the teaching of that day, uh, all the gods came from the north. And when he says God is terrible in majesty and coming out of the north, what he's saying is uh, all the false religions out there, he says God is above every human and above every deity. He is above everything. 
So in a closing statement, he annihilates any false religion that's out there saying that God is far above everything. And he's coming, and it's going to be unbelievably glorious and wonderful. And he looks to God's approach, and he says, what is our response to that? Well, we know he's just. We know he handles all things excellently. And I put in parentheses, he handles all things perfectly. Why don't we fear when God comes in, in, in the trembling and trepidation that the world fears their gods. It's because we know that God is just and we know that God is perfect. And so we know when he comes that it's going to be unbelievably wonderful and right. And so instead of dealing with life with a proudful response or an arrogant response, instead we bow to him. And what Elihu closes with Job says, please beware of your arrogant questions. He respecteth not any that are wise of heart. Just because you have a snarky response to God and the world around you thinks, ooh, look how smart he is, it means nothing to God. God doesn't heed that. That doesn't play. And I put here, are we heeding that warning ourselves? This wraps up Elihu's speeches and sets the stage for God to speak directly, which is the greatest thing that can be used out of Elihu's speech. And MacArthur notes this, Elihu had pointed Job and the reader to God who was ready at last to speak. Not that God is preparing, but he has prepared Job for him to come and talk. But I want to kind of recap Elihu briefly. What has he said so far? One, he said God speaks, and when God speaks, he speaks to save. God's words are redemptive words. That's how Elihu started. He says, God has talked to you prophecy, through suffering, through all of these different things. He says, God is speaking to you and he speaks to save. He has redemptive words. Number two, he says, God is just. It's a characteristic of being God. And to undermine that is to eradicate justice altogether and to belittle God. And if you're belittling God, you're making him not God. You can't take anything away from God and him stay God. And so he's saying to him, God is just And your questioning of God is a complete response of wickedness because it undermines who God is. Number three, God is worthy of service and worship because of who he is and not for what he may give you in this life. The friends had a prosperity gospel. They preached it to Job. Job resisted it, but there's a part of Job that bought into it. And he said, well, what's the point of serving God? I might as well be wicked. And he's saying, no, it's, it's worthwhile to serve God. He says, you're asking the wrong question. And when you ask that question, it proves self-centeredness. It says you're focused on you and not on God. God is worthy because he's God, not because you're a millionaire, not because you have tents, not because you have cattle, not because you have health, not because you have children, not because everything's going well. God is worthy because God is God. And number four, which is what we talked about, God is beyond anything humanity can imagine. He is far above us in his purpose and his wisdom and in his justice. Job and we need to see in the last speech the almightiness of God. And as Christopher Ashe notes, to reflect that only such cosmic power can be trusted to put into effect cosmic justice. The end of Elihu's talking was for us to trust God. Why do you trust God? Because he's God. And to to sit back, and, and in some ways, this is the peace that passes all understanding, 
is to say to God in the midst of swirling circumstances, and let's be honest, uh, we all face some sense of swirling circumstances, and some of us feel like we're spinning in one of those rides at those parks that make you throw up, right? We feel like it's just non-stop, and we can't get any rest from this. And God is saying through Elihu, as he sets up his own speech, he says, trust me, that I am who I said I am, that I will do what I say I will do, that I am perfect, that I am righteous, that I am the Savior, that I am reigning, king, sovereign. And that's how Elihu closes. He says, look at the Almighty God and put your trust in him because he is the only one in whom we can put our confidence. And I put this as our closing question. Do we trust God to act justly? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank for the opportunity we have to dive again into Job, a, a book you gave us in Scripture to help us journey through some of the tougher questions in life. We've walked with him through his speeches. We've seen his struggle. We've also seen his faith. It's, it's shown through, uh, through as he constantly is looking for a redeemer and a mediator. Uh, we've seen Elihu mention that mediator as well. We see him constantly pointing to you and that ultimately we understand uh, that we do need to trust in you. All of our confidence needs to rest in you. We rest in your purpose. We rest in your plan. Uh, we know that we're sinful and that we're sinners, that we needed a savior. We know that your plan and your purpose had you sending your son to be born as a baby, uh, to live a perfect life, to die a horrific death, and then rise again three days later. That was your purpose and your plan. That is your justice on display. That's your love on display. And Job, before that ever happens, we see you using your servant Elihu to preach that same concept that you are the God far above us, that you are a God who, who's planned for us. You're not surprised by us. And, and our call is to trust in you. I pray that as we walk out of here for believers, uh, that we will confidently trust in you, that we'll wrestle with areas that, uh, that rise up in our hearts and that we can then just use those to grow. And if you don't, uh, someone here doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, I hope that they'll understand that there is no hope without trusting in God. No amount of arrogance from the world, no amount of supposed proof that they throw out will ever be enough. Uh, they actually won't even speak that in the presence of God. And I hope that uh, those here that may not know you are convicted uh, to fully trust in you. In your precious and holy name, amen.